Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. As usual, just a reminder, please sign up for my newsletter at jasonpereira.ca. And in addition to that, if you enjoy this podcast or any other podcast that I do, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is your podcast. It really does help people discover the podcast. So on to today's show. Today on the show, I have Alex Klar, Head of Business Development for Payability. Payability is a company that offers financing to online merchants as a means of shortening their collection cycles. And with that, here's my interview with Alex. Hello, Alex. Hi. Thanks for taking How's the time. Going, Jason? Yeah, good. Just, uh, uh, my pleasure. Yeah, well, I mean, what else are you going to do? Thank We're both quarantined, me. right? Uh, that's about right, yeah. Yeah. So Alex Klar of Payability, tell us about Payability. So we are a capital as a service for the modern day supply chain. We provide both payment solutions and cash flow solutions to e-commerce sellers. And that can sound like a jumble. So essentially what we're doing is for those e-commerce sellers selling on marketplaces, we are shortening their cash conversion cycle when they're paid on terms. And for those selling on their own websites, we're providing liquidity and financing solutions for them to scale their business. Okay. So we'll dive into that in a second. Tell me about the origin of this company. How did it come to be? What was the purpose? So the company was started five years ago by our co-founders, Keith Smith, who's our co-founder and CEO, and by Scott Lynn, who's our co-founder and chairman. And the current product we have now was about four years ago. Both our co-founders have backgrounds in the ad tech space, and they saw a marketplace dynamic where there were buyers and sellers on opposite ends, and sellers were getting delayed in payments, even though they were making the sales, and there was a gap in time between when they would get paid, be able to use that money to reinvest in their business and buy more inventory. And it just kind of became pretty glaring that there was this gap between when a seller sells online and when they actually get paid. And once you say your business is online or you're in e-commerce, usually traditional financing sources, they kind of move fast to you. A lot of traditional banks and lenders tend to think of e-commerce still as a fad. I think now with the current as you know, a environment fad. we're wow. in now. <laughs> I mean, I, I know it's true, but it's just one thing they hear it. Like, oh no, this internet thing, it's never going to take. <laughs> like, break. Oh, and um, it's amazing how even just a couple of months ago, we still hear this all the time. I think in the current environment we're in now, I think it's going to catch a lot of traditional lenders up to speed on how important e-commerce is, how large it is. But mm-hmm. even then, you know, some of the smaller sellers, sellers doing less than $5 million a year in revenue, a lot of times they're outside the banking system, whether they're brick and mortar or, or not. And so our two founders kind of got together. And they realized we have a big problem here and we think we can solve it. And the way they approached it was saying there's all this untapped information. What if we were able to put AI and machine learning behind this and start to build you know, risk scores and really understand the data and be able to, to solve this problem? And so they spent that first year kind of doing product market fit, found a good product market fit, launched the product. And since the product's been launched, we've been able to deploy a little over $2.5 billion in growth capital since. Excellent. So, okay. So let's talk about what the world looks like without you and what the world looks like with you. So I am, let's just call it a small online shop or alternatively, I am, I'm a company who's a reseller on Amazon. I want to, I sell my widget online. Uh, someone fits click and how long does it traditionally take for me to get paid on that sale? So if you're selling on Amazon, traditionally it would take 14 days. Depending on the marketplace you're selling, it could take anywhere up to 30 to 60 days, Hmm. depending on different risk thresholds, if you're international and things like that. But essentially what we're doing, once you meet payability, we turn that net 14 into net one. And the way we do it is we're essentially providing daily payments instead of bi-monthly payments. That way you can take the proceeds from those sales 
and be able to buy more inventory and restock. Because when you're selling on a marketplace, and there is a big difference between a marketplace and selling on your own website. And a lot of people are doing both. But when you're selling on a marketplace like Amazon, Amazon is built to drive demand. And they're going to push a tremendous amount of demand at you. And one of the hardest things you're going to do as an e-commerce seller on Amazon is try to keep up with that demand and mm. not stock out. And that's where being able to reinvest into inventory to make sure that you have those good stock levels. So, you know, people don't go to buy something, see that you're stocked out and then go to someone else. And there's all sorts of other reasons that, you know, in other conversations we can get into about like the depths of how that can affect you. But we've essentially had um, had studies done on, on running out of stock, how that affects your business, detrimental on Amazon. Now, if you're selling on, let's say, a Shopify site or, you know, a website to another web builder, usually the biggest problem there is you need to create the demand for yourself. And that's usually going to be in some form of marketing, whether it's Facebook ad spend, PPC, or mm-hmm. a different type of ad spend. You have to, you essentially don't exist until people find you and you have to pay to have people find you. And that's where we see, you know, whereas on the marketplace, it tends to be more inventory financing. We see on the, on the website side, it's more about ad spend financing. And that's why some other financing companies um, have focused hundred percent exclusively on funding that advertising spend. But it's kind of the difference between when you're on the marketplace versus off the marketplace. So at its core, you're about shortening the cash conversion cycle. Because I mean, anytime you have, you get paid on delay, you're basically collecting money well after a transaction. You're basically essentially extending credit to the person who is essentially paying you. So whether that be Amazon, whoever it is, you're technically the credit card to them and they're paying you off before that credit card comes due. But that also leaves you with less cash in your bank to act. So you're taking that and, and basically making it essentially almost instant pay. So first off, let's talk about the factors. Well, let's actually, the implications are positive. So like, as you said, reinvestment into, into advertising or into, um, or into uh, simply into uh, inventory. But I would say also just frankly, anything that shortens the cash conversion cycle reduces the employers or the company's need for working capital, right? So even if they're in a position where they've got stable sales, the amount of money they can pull out of the business now because the investment in working capital has just gone down because of what you provided could be enormous. Could be, you know, like depending on the level of sales, could be could be six, seven figures in some cases, right? So yeah, and 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 what's interesting too is, you know, the term negative working capital has become really popular recently, and on just a high level, (laughs) (laughs) and on a high level, so everyone knows what it is. It's essentially being paid faster than you have to pay out for the goods. So we've seen, and we're working with some really, really large companies, um, like in in the billions who are essentially using us because they have 30-day terms with their sourcing centers. And if they can get paid every day, they're basically working with negative working capital. They're able to reinvest that capital over and over again before they have to actually have even paid for those goods. So it's different than drop shipping, which can have its own risks because you're selling something before you own it. Here you have the product, but you don't have to pay for it yet. So we're seeing applications even beyond bigger than what our initial sites were on of companies finding really tremendous use with just being able to have access to their own cash flow. Mm Because I think that's the key. It's their cash flow. It's not that they're drawing down a line of credit or something like that. Absolutely. So what are the factors that determine how long it takes someone to traditionally get paid before we get to your solution? Yeah. So traditionally, so I think in the cases of like Amazon, the issue there really is they have 2 million third-party sellers on the platform and they can't carve out 2 million individual rules. No, no. (laughs) So it becomes a race to the bottom. They need to create one blanket set of rules that everyone can fall under. 
and the bad guys and the good guys all have to come into it. So we also need to understand, too, on, on the marketplace side, they don't care as much about the supply side as they care about the demand side. So things like the A to Z guarantee by Amazon, that's focused on you and I having a great experience when we buy. Because if you don't have the buyers, then you don't even need the sellers. But the supply side is less focused on. So when you buy an item, there's organic returns and then there's non-organic returns. So a non-organic return is I bought this. It's not what I wanted or uh -huh. you kind of bait and switch me and send it back. Then there's an organic return. I bought a pair of shoes. They don't fit. Now that organic return of me sending it back, it's not a negative on you because the size didn't fit, but we need to parse that out. Is it an organic return? Are you selling crappier products for lack of a better term? So Amazon and the other marketplaces are factoring this in and they're saying, okay, so how long do I need to basically hold payments to create a return schedule where you can, as the customer, have the product, see it, then decide to return it, actually get it back to the seller when you return it to them or, you know, a fulfillment center or something like that. What does that window look like? That window usually looks around seven days. Huh. And then that's why on like uh, on eBay, we don't see that because they're paying with PayPal. You're kind of, it's, it's almost like an online flea market. You're contracting yeah. with the seller directly. So you're going to deal with them to get a return. Whereas, you know, in the larger marketplaces, Amazon, Walmart, and things like that, they need to control that because they're intermediating the payments. And I think that's the big line is who's intermediating payments. If it's Amazon, they want to create a lag. So those returns and everything can happen. If it's on something like Let It Go or Let Go or eBay, you're paying through PayPal. So they're not intermediating payments anymore. So now it's kind of between you and the, the seller directly. Okay. So we have those various uh, market factors at play. So how is it that you were able to then go in and give these people money the next day versus waiting for, waiting for them to get paid normally? Yeah. So the way we do it is um, first we have APIs with the marketplaces. So we're able to digest the information mm -hmm. and we're not digesting it manually. We're, we have um, different algorithms. We have machine learning. We, we use AI. We use all the bells and whistles that our engineers could probably speak to at great length that I'm probably butchering right now. And they're probably <laughs> all rolling their eyes when they hear this. But we're taking tons of information in to be able to create risk scoring. And it's not just cash flow in and out. It's all sorts of other signals that we can glean from the marketplace. Things like product concentration, geographic concentration, are all your products coming out of one location? Does that signify if you're a drop shipper or not? And all these different things kind of get machinated together. Are what country you're living in? Is is there you know, unrest in that country, all, all these different things. So that's all happening in real time in our underwriting. And then essentially what we do is we advance a certain portion. We'll advance up to, let's say, 90% of today's sales available tomorrow. And the reason we're leaving that gap is we're, that's that's our cushion for chargebacks and returns, mm -hmm. whether organic or inorganic. So is that is that <clears throat> normalized we across all industries or have you profiled risk tolerances across different industries or different uh, different types of products? Yeah, so we, we not only different products, but different types of uh, seller categorizations. So mm -hmm. a reseller is different than a than a private label, and they're both different than a wholesaler, and they're both different than someone who's drop shipping. And it, it comes into the different models, the different reasons that you would need use of funds, because we don't just do the daily payment product. We also do a, a capital advance, which is a lump sum of capital usually used to buy inventory and things like that. So sometimes you might be risking your only applicable for the daily working capital product, Sometimes, you know, depending on your model. So we're looking into not only the products, we're looking at the marketplaces you're selling it on. Different marketplaces have different risks as well, as well as your ability to actually fulfill the orders. Are you using fulfillment by Amazon? Are you using your own fulfillment? Are you using a third-party fulfillment center that has a great track record? Are mm -hmm. you, all these different things all come into play that 
allow us to determine, can we advance you 60% of your daily sales or 95% of your daily sales? And what should the rate associated with that be? All right. So basically you have done all this data uh, digging. You basically say you're going to pay me, let's call it 80% of my daily sales the next day, which is fantastic. I'm happy with that. Of course, there is a spread on this, right? You're going to keep some of this amount. What does that typically look like? Well, for our biggest and most established customers, it can be as low as 0.4%. And then for some of the riskiest yeah. customers, it might be as high as 2.5%. It's a flat rate, and we kind of treat it like a, like a set, uh, like almost like a SaaS fee. So if you were to look at all your line items when you sell a product, you have your COGS, you have your fulfillment costs, your chargebacks, returns, gift wrapping, you name it. If you were to add one more line item there that said get paid tomorrow, that would be our fee. I think for most people coming in, it's usually around 2%. But then as we build more familiarity with you, as our systems, our machine learning can learn more about your process, our goal is always to lower your rate while increasing the advance rate at the same time. Well, I mean, to me, that's still just a steal because you think about what someone's going to pay on a, line, on a business line of credit to do that, right? And then you think about what the, the ROI is on the cash in the, in the business that was able to be deployed. You're a rounding error in comparison to that, right? Maybe not 2% compared to the line of credit, but the line of credit is still going to be highly, it's still going to be much more than that. So I think, frankly, just all the alternative sources of this are, are far more expensive than what you're doing. So maybe you're not charging enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, you know, it's so interesting because it really depends on your model and it depends on what you're trying to do. And that's why people ask us all the time, what's your perfect size customer? And I always try to get away from that conversation. I say, my perfect customer is trying to scale their business because the perfect customer for me is going to take the money that they're getting daily and put it back into inventory, put it back into revenue generating functions that, that scale their business up. So a non-perfect customer, no matter what size they are, is potentially, you know, maybe a wholesaler who's working on razor thin margins where that 2% fee now actually starts to hurt their business a little bit. Because there are some out there that are yeah. working at such razor thin margins that any shakeup can, can hurt them. But, you know, it's um, companies that are looking to scale. We, um, I had our business intelligence team put together for me maybe about seven, eight months ago. I said, you know, out of my own curiosity, can you pull 500 random customers and show us what their sales looked like three months before they met us? the months they met us and three months afterwards. And I'd love to say every one of them had a perfect hockey stick. A lot of them did, but more importantly, because there is seasonality in e-commerce, whether they went up and down or wavy, the vast majority, their end point three months after they met us was higher than the point three months before they met us, which means that they were using their own cash flow effectively to scale their business. Yeah, it's funny. I've, I've, on a couple of occasions, I've talked about Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog, and how that's not the way to run a business, specifically because he was running that thing on literally no money whatsoever. And that was just endangering the company. But frankly, a product like a system like yours would have highly enabled their growth stage, right? Would have, you know, they wouldn't have to worry about turnover. So they wouldn't have to worry about cash collection cycles. They could literally monetize the next day and continue to reinvest at a faster and faster rate. So yeah, it's a, it's a hugely valuable, uh, valuable tool what you guys are doing. So let's talk about the actual mechanics of a payment. So you guys plug into the APIs, you do all this. Does Amazon pay you or do you basically yeah. get indirectly paid through the consumer? through the business itself. So we can do it both ways. And we do it whichever, we pride ourselves in being friction-free financing. Mm -hmm. So we'll do it whichever way is the easiest for, for the customer. Traditionally, in the way we, we prefer to do it is we are in the flow of funds. 
Mm-hmm. So we become the payee on the account. And essentially, Amazon's, Amazon pays us every 14 days. We're paying you every day. So that's why we're paying you, let's say, 80% of today's sales tomorrow. And we do that. And then when Amazon releases the full amount to us after 14 days, we give you that remaining 20% reserve back minus the fee. And we're doing that every day. And we're, we're in the flow of funds. So you're, you're seeing your bank statements now went from seeing Amazon twice a month to now seeing payability every day. We also can do it directly through the bank account to essentially create more flexibility. Mm-hmm. So we can essentially still read everything via our APIs, but then interact in and out of the bank account via ACH debits to be able to provide the capital as well. Yeah, so you see the money hit and you you basically, your, your system automatically just puts in a request for the transfer. Yeah, and I mean, being in the flow, de-risks your business to such a large degree, right? You don't have to worry about collections then. It just You just know that you're going to get paid directly. So I would think that must be, I mean, frankly, I would think the likes of Amazon and all the different marketplaces. I mean, you got a bunch of logos up there, you know, Shopify, Etsy, Walmart. I, mean, I would think that they frankly must all be happy to deal with you simply because, hey, you're going to enable our people that are working with us to sell more stuff. So it's win, win, win. So yeah, you do. Well, that's a funny one. You literally have found a win, win, win scenario. Well done. The And, now, the, and the other thing about being in the flow of the yeah. funds, just to jump in real quick, the other thing yeah. about being in the flow of funds that is really beneficial to our customers as well is now we get to figure out how we want to give you the money. And mm-hmm. so what we do there is we have an e-wallet for our customers and we give them a dashboard. They can log in via desktop, mobile. We have an iOS app. We have an Android app on uh, the Google Play Store. But there they have now multiple ways that they can receive the money. They can wire it to themselves. They can do a same-day ACH. They can do an instant transfer on the ACH rails. Or we've actually partnered to be able to offer a corporate visa debit card, where if they use the debit card, every dollar that lives in the wallet lives on the card. If they use the card, we'll give them 2% cash back on every dollar they spend. And then we can run certain promotions with cash back. Like for Shopify customers, we're running a promotion where they get like 5% cash back if they use it for Facebook ad spend. And that allows us to be able to kind of play with that cash back and play with you know, some boosted incentives for our customers about, you know, as well, not only getting their cash flow, but also getting boosted incentives. That's smart. I mean, on a couple of levels, I mean, essentially you're also servicing, serving as a neobank for these customers. And then in addition to that, uh, it's, it's a nice feedback cycle, right? You're, if that card and those promotions basically lead businesses to spend new money on the sites that you're working with in the first place, that all feeds back into your profitability as well. So no, fantastic. So I mean, the one thing that kind of jumps out at me about this is that the big requirement for a business like yours, I mean, beyond the technology and the intelligence is one honkingly large capital pool. So uh, how'd you go about raising the money to basically be able to take 14 day waits on this sort of stuff? Yeah. So our fundraising is very unique and then not every not every startup gets to take the advantages we got to take, which is one of our co-founders, Scott, is a VC himself. So he was very <laughs> successful in his previous companies. So he was very successful in his previous companies, and this was something he wanted to do. And um, both of our, our our co-founders are serial entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, it's uh, essentially we got to start with an equity piece, and then we just had a – and basically we were deploying – you know, they were deploying some of their own capital at first as they were testing the product. But because we didn't have to raise traditional VC money and raise bank debt at the same time and spend the year it takes to actually raise all that money, we could focus on product market fit that first year and then focus on just putting some uh, capital lines together having already put out some private money at first saying like, look, this works. And then um, basically putting together different capital lines. So we are funded uh, a couple different ways. We have a couple different lines and they, they themselves have their own covenants and their own prices. So we have like our cheapest capital and our second cheapest capital, and then our third cheapest capital essentially. But um, 
it's interesting because thankfully we have great capital providers who have an appetite for this because we actually were just awarded a patent last fall for turning B2C invoices into factorable B2B invoices, essentially. So turning marketplace third-party seller payments into factorable invoices. You know, I just think it shows the strength of like what we're doing and everyone who's behind us because it's, it's such a needed product. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And you guys got a patent on what you're doing. That's fantastic. And then I would say this much, not the first VC I've seen who's detected a need amongst the companies he was looking to invest in and then turned around and basically filled that need. So smart move, smart move. Yeah, and I mean, I think what they one of the big premises of how they got together on it was they started to look at the retail supply chain as a $25 trillion market. Mm-hmm. And it is undergoing a massive change. COVID-19, I think, is accelerating that change tremendously. But the thesis over time was to leverage modern day AI and ML techniques to utilize massive data sets from the retailers and the marketplaces to basically train algorithms to focus on that and then make sense of it. What made sense of it was, yeah, we can do this. We can speed up this cash conversion cycle and make it a win-win for everyone. And to your point earlier, when you were saying it's a win-win for the marketplaces, so they all measure themselves in GMV gross merchandise value. And we directly improve the GMV of each merchant we work with, which overall increases the GMV of the marketplace. So it typically is a win-win for everyone. Fantastic. All right. So before we wrap up, I've got those three questions I ask everybody uh, just to throw you off. First question for you. If you had one wish for something you could change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? Uh, That's a great question. It's always everybody's first response. (laughs) 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 Spies you time to think. Go ahead. It might sound like a cheesy answer or a cop-out, but honestly, just having more time. For us, we are still a startup. We're a 60-person startup. So we we have bandwidth issues like everyone else. And there's so many people we want to get this message out to and so many different companies we want to talk to. So if I could change anything, it would be I would rain down some equity on us that's just operational in use so we could scale the team up more so we could get the message out more and and grow the company more because it's not a... um, not a demand issue on our end. It's again, 63 person startup, you know, like, like a lot of startups, when we, when we scale, it usually goes to things like engineering product and customer support, but there's all sorts of other ways that if I had my druthers, I would do to, to, to expand the company and and other, other areas too. international. I'd want to be working with all the marketplaces all over the world, not just in America, but every step has its own, you know, we have to do things incrementally and step function. So expansion, expansion, expansion would be my answer. Fair enough. Second question for you. What's been the biggest challenge in getting the company to where it is today? It's another good one. I told you I'd get a blind side. I, prior- <laughs> I, I think, you know, and I think a lot of startups uh, struggle with this. I think it's uh, choosing the right direction and what to execute on in a world that's fluid and constantly changing. We can make a decision that, let's say, doing international expansion is the most important thing. And then we wake up tomorrow and we find out that COVID-19 happened and our customers are literally the lifeblood of the entire economy right now. And so where do we put our resources? So I think that's been one of the biggest struggles. I think the other struggle is people try to lump what we do, which is technically factoring, into the entire APR conversation and they're trying to compare it with a home mortgage loan. We have these conversations all the time, like what would what would the APR on that be? And it's like APR doesn't really make sense when we're talking about such short-term financing because APR was designed to compare multi-year loans with other multi-year loans. And it was really so much around the mortgage market and credit cards that APRs became a big deal. And I think a lot of alternative lenders, especially cash advance funders right now are dealing with these APR conversations because it's not a loan. When I make you a loan, you're making an agreement to 
to me to pay me back. This is not that. And a lot of times I'm already purchasing some type of future receivable and essentially purchasing it at some form of a discount or charging you to accelerate a payout. So I think that's been one of the biggest struggles. We're pretty good at it, at, at describing it, but I would say a lack of education in financing in general in our country and across the world has been has been a struggle. And we try to meet that by trying to educate people as much as we can. I gotta say, I don't find it surprising. I mean, being, you know, given my day jobs in financial planning, the lack of financial literacy in general tends to be a problem. And I would think that that definitively extends to what financial literacy is in businesses. So can't say that I, I am, I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> And last question before we wrap up, what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and what keeps you getting up every morning to fight the good fight? Oh, that's the easiest one you've asked so far. So many things. So one, what excites me is that we are helping businesses grow. We're, we're helping people who may have been laid off from former jobs, mm. uh, people who wanted to own their own company, people who just wanted to live life on their own terms. Nothing allows you to do that better than having an e-commerce business. Mm. Whether you're selling in a marketplace or you have your own website, and we get to genuinely help these companies grow larger, more established businesses, scale up their companies. We hear so much, such great feedback from our customers that we're genuinely helping people. And for me, I, I've always kind of worked in and around small business. I, I grew up in a four-generation small business myself, started my first company when I was 22. So being able to actually help small businesses grow is what wakes me up every day. The fact that we're in fintech in general is always evolving and there's always new things to learn about. There's always great new companies popping up. Some are competitors, mm -hmm. some can be partners, some can be both, depending on which what time you meet them. And then I, I'd say right now, what wakes all of us up, everyone on the team every day, is the fact that all of us right now are buying things online to stay alive, whether it's PPE, toilet paper, mm -hmm. food, anything. And we are literally providing the capital to the people that are selling to all of us. And I think it's, um, without trying to get too hokey on or anything, it's it's mission critical what we do right now is keeping these businesses afloat and allowing them to restock an inventory. And I think that that definitely energizes me every morning when I get up. Fantastic. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time. I very much appreciate it. And uh, hopefully this leads to more business because frankly, that'll hopefully lead to the people listening, making more business in the first place. So wonderful virtuous cycle you have going there. Thank you for having me. And it was uh, my pleasure. So that was my interview with Alex Clark Payability. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you're an online merchant who wants to shorten their payment cycles, take a good look. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, review wherever it is you get your podcast. This has been FinTech Impact, and I'm Jason Pereira. Take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.